Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 25. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, uh, to give you uh, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroyed you, and he destroy you from, uh, of, sorry, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and is good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you, and that you may go and go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your, our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, uh, to fear the Lord our God for our good ways, or our, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he commanded us. Let me pray real quick. Father, we thank you for just this morning we could freely gather here um, and worship you. I just pray that you, you, you use Vince um, in a powerful way. Uh, you speak through him. Father, that uh, hearts would be touched this morning and, and that we could hear your truth. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dale. Give Dale a hand. That was a lengthy passage that I sprung on him last second. 
good morning. My name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here, and welcome. Glad you are here. Last week, uh, Kenny spoke from the end of Deuteronomy, and this week I, I wanted to dive into one of the most famous passages of Deuteronomy. In fact, one of the most famous passages of all of Scripture is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Deuteronomy is essentially a series of sermons on that, that Moses passes out before he dies. And this passage we just read was a sermon on the first commandment. So if you want to hear a sermon today, essentially Dale already preached a sermon to you. That's why we read the whole thing. This passage is probably one of the most quoted passages in Scripture. It's the, the home of the Shema. Shema, which means hear in uh, the Jewish language. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the core text of Judaism, and it is central to our understanding of God for some really good reasons. Uh, first of all, because this is the central commandment that all the other commandments are based on. When you talk about the Bible, when you talk about the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and all the law, which is essentially 613 commandments of the law, those 613 commandments are all outworkings of the big ten. But all of those commandments, the Ten Commandments, are based on this one commandment, right? This is central, and essentially, um, Luther, Martin Luther, famous uh, reformer and theologian, says this, all those who do not at all times trust God, trust in his favor, grace, and goodwill, but seek his favor in other things or in themselves, do not keep the first commandment and practice real idolatry even if they were to do the works of all the other commandments. In other words, what Martin Luther's saying is that the reason why we break the other nine commandments is because we've already broken this first commandment. When we steal, when we covet, when we don't rest on the Sabbath, it's because we don't love or trust God in his provision. When we uh, commit adultery, we're looking outside of God and his good plan for our life somewhere else. We've taken these good things and we've elevated them to God things and we're serving them instead of him. So when we talk about the law, it's all summarized right here. That's why, remember the, the teacher uh, comes to Jesus and he says, what's the greatest of all the commandments in Matthew uh, chapter 22? And what's Jesus say? You guys remember? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus says this one right here, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, is the greatest and first commandment. And then he adds Leviticus 19, 18. And he says, and when you love God like this, it has social ramifications. It affects everything, including the way you relate to others. So this is the central commandment. It's foundational. And, and secondly, in this passage, you and I today get a compact description, not just what it means to know about this God, not just what it means to kind of know God in a general sense, but in this passage, we get a description of what it means to know God personally and communally. There's four aspects to knowing God that we're going to dig into as quick as we can from this passage. And to know God, you must truly believe in God fully as he is, love God transformationally, trust him unconditionally, 
And lastly, tell God's story. You guys ready? All right, so number one, to know God means that you've got to believe in God fully. Verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is how many? One. Now, what's that mean? Um, The dominant belief in most of the world, for most of human history, is that there's many gods. Why? Because there's a lot of areas of life that need gods over them. There's so many areas in which we live. So in order to cover all the bases, you you need a lot of gods. There's gods for the harvest and gods for sowing and gods for times of war and gods for time of peace. There's gods for every part of your life. And if you move to the mountain, there's mountain gods. And if you move to the valley, there's valley gods. And there's ocean gods and river gods, right? There's gods of all these areas. But then somebody says, but what about that area in between? You know, that area... Me and my family are moving to the canyon. Is there a canyon God? And they say, actually, there's not a canyon God yet. Huh. So wait a second. What you're saying is, if I go out to the desert near this canyon, I can get away with whatever I want? That's what you're telling me? We have an area like this out near a canyon in a desert, actually, in our culture. It's called Vegas. (laughs) Or God, God doesn't live there, you know. What happens there? Yeah, you guys heard the commercial, right? Who's Lord over this area? And then all of a sudden, though, something happens. That region begins to suffer. Maybe it's not raining. Maybe things, things start going wrong. And it's like, okay, wait a second. There's not a God here. Who do we sacrifice to? What do we do to get rain to our region? How can we get the life that we want here well, there's not a God. Maybe we need to make a God. Start shaping the canyon God. Start sacrificing to the canyon God. There's not one. How can I get what I want, what I need over there? And then this God comes along. It's Jehovah God. And he says, that, that whole system, it's not working. And you don't need it. Because like what you've been looking for and all those little gods, you already have in me. I'm one, not many right? I'm everywhere. I'm not just in some places. Kind of like in the Matrix. You guys seen that where where they load him into the program and he's like surrounded with white light? God's like, I I surround your life like that. There's no shadows. It's all, it's like, I see everything. I'm everywhere, right? And unlike those little gods, my rules don't change from place to place. My rules don't change from time to time. You have people in your life who are volatile and unpredictable and you never know how to please them, you're kind of scared walking around, tiptoeing around them because you do one thing one day and, and they're happy and then you do the same thing the next day and they're yelling at you. You're like, ah! That's what some of these gods were like. And God says, I'm not temperamental. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't have to guess what to sacrifice to me, you know, because it's not raining, so you sacrifice. And then it's still not raining, so you have to ante. And pretty soon, what do you see over and over in cultures? They start sacrificing the most precious things to them, even their kids. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to lay this out for you. I'm a loving father. I'm going to share with you my rules, my law, because I care about you. I care about every part of your life. I'm Lord over your finances and your sexuality and your harvest. I even care about what you eat and drink. I even care about what you wear. I'm a loving father, and I care about you experiencing fullness in every area of your life, in every area that your lives may go, every place. 
There's no nook and cranny of the universe where I am not there. There's no nook and cranny of your life I don't care about. You see that? That's why it was so revolutionary in this time, in this way. One God. And it's just as revolutionary for us today. But back then, the dominant belief was that there's many gods kind of dependent on your location. Today, we still have that belief. Today, the belief is there's many gods depending on the individual. Because our dominant belief today is that everybody has the right to believe in God for you in your own way. Right? Our culture believes that there's many gods, but God is saying right here, no, there's only one real God, and it's me. And if you want to know me, you can't just make up who I am. I'm a real person. You have to take me as I really am. You have to know me as I reveal myself to be in Scripture, and you have to believe in me truly and fully. And that's honestly not really something that most people in San Diego like to hear. Right? As I talk to people, what I hear people saying in San Diego is very ironic. The average San Diegan says, you know, I want to have spiritual experiences. I want to be part of a loving, accepting community. I want to do something of value with my life. But I kind of want to design my own spirituality, my own, my own God. Now, I don't say it that way. But here's what we do. We say, I, I like this part of the Bible, but not this part. Right? Yeah, I like this part, even this philosophy over here. This, I like a little bit of Buddhism. I love this part of modern social theory. I like to piece together an understanding of God that suits me. It's a free country. Go ahead. But may I suggest an outcome you'll have. If you do that, if you create your own designer God that fits in your nice Louis Vuitton bag, you'll cut yourself off from having the true spiritual experience you crave. Why? Because this is not a living God. If you design a God that fits you and you throw out of the Christian tradition anything you don't like, what you end up with, what what do you end up with? You end up with a God who can never challenge you. He can never fight with you. He can never disagree with you. He can never outrage you. You have a cardboard cutout God. And you won't have a a living relationship with him because you can't. I remember the first time I went on a missions trip, I was uh, 12 or 13, and we went to smuggle Bibles into China. I don't know why my parents sent me at 12 years old on this mission trip, (laughs) but they did, and I got into some trouble. One of the things that you'll see in a picture I'm posting right now to embarrass myself is that there was a flight attendant in the airport at Korea that I gave a big smooch right on the cheek. Do you have the picture? Yeah. That's 13. Now, why would I embarrass myself like this? Let me tell you. Because, I don't know, if you look down like around her knee area, you'll see that's a cardboard cutout, right? So I gave her a big smooch on the cheek. And let me tell you, it wasn't that great. First of all, she never kissed me back. I couldn't pack her up in my luggage and carry her home with me and smuggle her into China along with the Bibles, right? I can't. Here's my point. You can't have a relationship with a cardboard cutout. Okay. Yeah? yeah? She was still pulling away from you. She was pulling away from me. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> no consent. Oh, my gosh.
And look, it's the same thing with a cardboard cutout God. So if you're willing to accept how God reveals himself to you in Scripture, you have a relationship. But if you're not, you completely cut yourself off from any real ability to have a real life-changing spiritual experience in relationship with God. And it's a more common thing than you'd think. You know, over 2,000 years ago, Paul talks about this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, even birds and animals and creeping things. They traded the glory of God for a cardboard cutout. 350 years ago, Blaise Pascal says almost the same thing. God created us in his own image. Then we return the favor. Listen, here's what I'm trying to say. Don't try to shape God in your image. Let him shape you and reshape you into his. That's what you were created for. And here's why. Let me, let me help you with this ironic truth. Ironically, the God your heart most desperately needs is the God your heart didn't create. Because listen, at some point in your life, you're going to feel worthless. How can a God that you know you made up come and tell you, no, you're wrong. You're unbelievably valuable. At some point, you're going to feel guilty. You're going to feel ashamed. You're going to feel afraid. How can a God you made up come and say, no, you're forgiven? You're loved. You're my beloved child. I hold your future in my hands. Which hands, God? The ones I made from cardboard? No, the infinite hands of the creator of the universe. The, the deepest need of your heart is for a real God you didn't invent, but you discovered a God you know is real. How much more rich is it to have a relationship with a living, breathing person than a cardboard cutout? Like that, like that cardboard cutout flight attendant. I thank God I met my wife. <laughs> Firstly, because she's a way better kisser. Okay, I'll just say that. Secondly, I mean, she's brilliant. She's funny. She's an amazing mother. She's everything my heart longs for. And guess what? Sometimes she contradicts me. And sometimes she ticks me off. Because she knows me better than I see myself sometimes. She sees my blind spots. She challenges me. She loves me right in the middle of my mess, and I'm far better for it. Listen, the, the life and the love that you long for is within your reach right here with the living, breathing God of the universe. Don't settle for a counterfeit, a cardboard cutout. If that's what you've been doing, take a leap of faith today. Believe in him fully, truly, how he's revealed himself for all that he is with all that you are. Yeah? So, first, to know God, you have to believe in him fully as he reveals himself. Second, to know God, also, you must love him transformatively. The key word in this commandment is, is love. All right? Verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love all that he is as he's revealed himself with all that you are. Every fiber of your being. But that raises a problem for us in our culture because we use that word love. And that word love is, is often difficult for us to wrap our heads around, if we're honest, because we talk about it in so many ways. It's a flippant term, you know? 
I love the coffee at that new modern times. Have you had the pizza? I love that pizza. I love my wife. I love lamp. You know what I mean? It's just like spiraling out of control. What is love? Right? When we talk about love, it's so overused, it tends to lose its meaning. We think about love, we think about romantic love, we think about Disney movies and Happily Ever After and Jasmine and Aladdin soaring, tumbling, free-willing through an endless diamond sky. It's a whole new world. You're like, nah, I watched it ten times. It's, it's old. So when scripture tells us to love God with our heart, soul, and strength, we say, that's a little weird. How can you command somebody to love? Isn't love a feeling? It's an emotion? But that's the point. If love was just a feeling, if love was just an emotion, then, you know, basically, there's no way to love him and be commanded to love him. But the way he tells us to, you'd only love somebody with part of you if love was a feeling or emotion, right? You'd only be able to give them part of your heart. But the command here is to love him with your whole life, with your emotion and your intellect and your will and your strength and your actions and your words. Everything in your life is affected and transformed by this love. So what's that mean? Two things. There's two tests that I can tell from this passage uh, that show us whether or not we're actually loving God in a way that's transforming our lives. And you're not loving God with your whole life, your soul, mind, strength. You're not loving him with all that you are unless it's actually transforming you. So what are the two tests? Look at this passage, verses 7 through 9. He says this. He says, talk on the road and in the home. That's your private life and your public life everywhere. Bind it on your head and bind this truth on your hands. What's that mean? That's, that's your thinking internally inside, and that's your actions and what you do externally. He says, as you go to bed and as you wake up, that's your entire waking life. From the moment you wake up to the night, you, at, when you lay your head in bed at night, love God with everything, all of your waking life. He says, write it on the doorposts of your home. It means you apply it to your family, but he doesn't stop there. He says, nail it to the gates of the city. That means you apply it to the economic, political, social, and civic life of society. See, God is one, and this is what it's saying. If you love God with your whole heart, it means you will love God with your whole life. It's not just on the weekends and Sunday mornings, but it's on Monday when you go back to work. You're not living a bifurcated lifestyle this way over here, this way over here, but you're loving God on Monday and you're loving God on Wednesday with your GCM and you're loving God on Friday at the bar and you're loving God with every part of your life, not just your public life, but your private life. Not just with this person, but with that person. In other words, go into every corner of your life and apply this truth, your entire waking life, public, private, internal, external, and constantly ask this question, how does who God is And what God says affect everything. How does it affect this? How I think here, how I act here, how I live here, all of my life. This idea that God is one. What word do we use for oneness in math? Any mathematicians? Uh, What whole number? We have a, anybody? Integer, Katie. (laughs) Integer, right? You guys heard that word? Take you back to elementary school there. Integer, 
you guys mind if I set this? <laughs> Integer. So we're, that's where we get the word integrity. The wholeness, right? Who you are when nobody's looking. You guys ever heard that? Integrity. Therefore, love him with a oneness, a wholeness of being. Love him with every part. And you want every nook and cranny of your life to be affected and transformed by the love of God. That's what it means. So firstly, to love him with all that you are means it affects your individual life. But that's not all. It also talks about your corporate life. Notice who God's speaking to. He says, hear and love me, oh who? Oh, Israel. Yeah, we've got a hotspot right over there. Some people listening and loving that. He says, here's what you have to do there. God's not just calling you as an individual to love God, but God is calling together individuals who love him to form a community that loves him. And the very way that the community structured and the very way that the community lives out in the world. Uh, I want to read a text here. I had um, a bunch of stuff, but let's pull everybody back in. Let's do a, a dialogue. You guys like dialogue? All right, let's do it. Um, I want us to imagine with some prophetic imagination what it could look like to be a community of light that takes the love of God and works it out into every area of our life and culture as a church. Sound good? All right, so um, think about that. We're going to read a passage a few pages to the right. This is another passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting with verse 12. And Moses is essentially applying this truth to the community, to the family of Israel. Okay, Verse 12, listen to this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Sound familiar? Uh, Let's skip down to 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. That's amazing. You see what that's saying? That's saying it's, it's not enough just to bring the love of God into your personal life, but it's got to affect your social conscience. It's got to affect the, the very understanding of where you are in society and being a community of light in a culture of darkness. So here's a question that I want to ask us, and let's dialogue about this. What kinds of things would you see in a community that was taking the love of God into every nook and cranny of their communal life and in, into their culture? What, what's, what would be some marks of that? What's that? Generosity. Yeah, it says that here, doesn't it? Generosity. Like, how do we tend to use our funds when we have them? We tend to use them unilaterally right? For ourselves. That's what we tend to do in most cultures in the world. But he says, I want you to use your funds also relationally because you needed something and I poured out of my storehouse for you. And now I want you to take what's left over in your life, not just the leftover, your best, and take care of the needs among you. The foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. You'll see that triad all throughout scripture. Sometime do a study on that. The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow all the way up through James. Right? And this is the people in need among you because you are in need. You are in need. Yeah, what else? What else do you see? Just policies. 
Yeah. Where there's injustice, making things right. Because God is a God who's just. That's part of his character. And you suffered terrible injustice in Egypt. And what did God bring? God set the record straight in Egypt, didn't he? And he pulled them out. And, and we're supposed to be living those kinds of lives here in our world. Now, it doesn't mean that we get disengaged in hope for, you know, sweet pie in the sky and the by and by. That's Okay, that's an old Pentecostalism there. <laughs> that's, it doesn't mean we just wait for heaven for God to set everything right. It means that we pull that back into now and we start to live that way. Yeah, we live lives of justice. What else? Sorry? Community. Yeah, we're not just one. God didn't just come and save one person out of Egypt. He saved the whole family. Yeah. Anything else? Opening your home. Yeah. So not just sharing your money, but sharing all your resources. Starting to view your resources as a gift of grace. I love, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 8, right between, sandwiched between these two, where God is talking to them about people in need among them. And he said, but he starts to challenge them because he knows our thinking. We tend to think, I have resources. How did I get them? I earned them. I went to school. I worked my butt off. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Now here I am, and I have these resources. Why would I share them with somebody who's not trying? And you remember what God says to them in Deuteronomy 8? He says, um, don't imagine that you essentially, I, I think I wrote this down. Hold on. Let me see if I wrote this scripture down somewhere. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce the wealth you have. You could have been born on a mountain in Tibet in the 6th century, but you weren't. God gave you life. God set you in a time and place in a particular context, and he's blessed you with everything. The air in your body is a gift of grace. You've been given everything you have. So share. Live generously. Yeah, with all your resources. Good. And we can keep going, right? But we're starting to imagine a community is taking the love of God into every aspect of their life and into their culture would start to look very different from the culture around them. So ask yourself, how, how, how am I doing at this? How are we as a church doing at this? Okay. You're called to love God transformatively and take his love into every nook and cranny of your life. Let's go on to point number three. Trust God unconditionally. Look at verse 16. Do not test the Lord your God. When we think of tests, what do we think of? School, SATs, going to college, education, or maybe we think of like trials, right? We think of going through difficulties, and God testing us. But here in this passage, it says they tested God. When did they do that? How did they test God? Well, it's referring back to Exodus chapter 17 when the children of Israel were in the desert, and they thought they were going to die of thirst. And they go to Moses. You guys remember this? And they say, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you, and we're going to go back to Egypt because there we had plenty of water, and we ate with leeks and garlic. They kind of conveniently forget they were slaves in Egypt. <laughs> and they're just like, basically, what are they saying? They're saying, we will follow God if. To test is to consider a party guilty until they prove themselves innocent. 
I'll follow God if he proves himself to me. If God gives me what I want, how I want, when I want. To test the Lord is to say, I'll follow God as long as my life is going the way I think it ought to go. As long as I have answers to all my questions, as long as you give me the life I want on my terms, as long as you prove yourself worthy, I'll follow you. But the problem is, what happens when you go into your wilderness times? What happens when we all suffer health problems, when we have disappointments in our career, when we have relational struggles, when we suffer loss, when things are going terribly? Sometimes, don't we start to think like this? We start to say stuff like, isn't God all powerful? Then he must be incompetent. Like, he's not really doing, did you fall asleep up there? Where are you at? I'm down here suffering, I'm grinding it out, everything is going wrong. Look, I'll follow you if you start to make things right. That's testing God. And let me tell you why that doesn't work. I love this story. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, um, who's a, a very famous author, Christian author, she, um, she used to go visit her friends in, in North Wells who had a sheep farm. And one time she was there in a season where they, the farmers had to do something to the sheep, and it's, it's kind of awful, what they had to do. See, the shepherd has to take his sheep and he takes them into this huge vat of antiseptic and he holds them under the antiseptic, you know, and the bubbles are coming up and the sheep, the sheep have to go under the antiseptic because otherwise what happens is all the insects and the parasites will eat them alive. So they have to take the sheep and they have to completely submerge them in this gross vat of antiseptic and hold them under. And she noticed something. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from her book. One by one, John sees the animals. And they would struggle to creep out the side and Mac the sheepdog would snarl and snap at their faces and force them back under. And when they tried to climb up the ramp in panic, John would catch them by the ears, spin them around, force them under again, holding them ears, eyes, nose, submerged for a few moments. As their lord and master, he was pushing their head under, drowning them, as far as they could tell, and their panicking little eyes would look up over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What are you doing, God? Right? Has anybody been there before? And here's what Elizabeth Elliot says. And by the way, she's young when she writes this. She's only about 45, already lost two husbands. Here's what she writes. I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There were times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd, whom I trusted. But like these sheep, I didn't have a hint of an explanation. Think about it. The shepherd has to do that to the sheep or else they'll die, right? On the other hand, there's no way that the shepherd could give the sheep any kind of explanation that would be good enough for them, that would comfort them, that would give them assurance. So there's only two possibilities. The sheep would die, or the sheep would trust the shepherd without explanation. Why? Because there's this huge gap of understanding and communication and intelligence and perspective between the shepherd and the sheep. And the gap is so great, there's no satisfactory way to explain to the sheep what's going on. And it means the sheep either have to trust and submit, or else they'll die. And that's the same two choices we have. And we have an infinitely bigger gap between us and the great shepherd than we do in the sheep, right? We're finite, God's infinite. And if you say, if you say I'll trust God if, if you trust God conditionally, what makes you think you're smart enough? What, make, 
Honestly, what makes you think you could handle that eternal perspective that God has? Do you know the end of, of, of everything from the beginning? How could you possibly know that what he's doing right now is not what's best for you? You can't. All right, here's the deal. If there's no God, then there's no issue. It doesn't matter. But if there's a God, you have to trust him unconditionally. You have to be willing to trust him without explanation. You have to trust him without all your questions being answered. Right? Either there's no God, so it doesn't matter, it's all pointless anyway, or there is a God and you've got to trust him unconditionally. But the one thing you can't do is the one thing that we tend to do the most often, at least I do, which is we follow God as long as he comes through for us, when I want, how I want, where I want. But how can you know whether he's coming through for you or not? We're sheep. We have to trust God unconditionally. And listen, if you're able to turn that corner, if you can go to the place where you really start to say, I don't know what's going on here, but I do know my great shepherd, that he cares for me. Whatever's going on, I trust his heart. That's what Spurgeon says, right? When you cannot trace God's hand, you can always trust his heart. If you can get there, then there's a great calm and a peace. It's remarkable. You're going under the water, but you know he's there with you. You're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will not fear. Why? For thou art with me. How do you get that calm? How do you get that trust? How do you get that peace? That's our last point. Fourth, you've got to tell the story. You've got to tell the story. Look at verse 20. When your son asks you in a time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? In verse 20, a son, a kid comes to his dad and asks, what's the meaning of these laws? And basically what the son's saying is this. I see you trusting God unconditionally. I see you loving God and taking that into every area of your life. I see you believing in him fully, but why should I? Why should I? Anybody have kids here? This is going to be a question that comes up. Trust me. And what I find interesting is the answer doesn't go right to verse 24. Because God commanded it, right? Like, I grew up in church. I don't know if you guys grew up in church, some of you, but I grew up in church. And I saw my friends ask their parents questions about the faith and different things like that. And oftentimes, unfortunately, what the parents would say is like, well, because God said, right? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. You guys heard that? It's like, ah. But that, that won't satisfy a child's heart. I mean, you might get compliance for a little bit. If you give them a law, like, why should I obey the law? Here's a law, you know? Why should I trust God? Well, here's a commandment. It's true, but there's got to be more than that in order to change the heart. Most parents scroll right past verses 21 to 23, straight to verse 24 and say, because God says so. Why should I obey the law? You point him to a law. In the long run, that won't satisfy your heart. If you say to yourself, I've got to do this, otherwise God will get me. I'm a sheep, he's a shepherd, I guess I've I've got to. No, 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 look, here's what you have to know. The answer of why should I obey the commands of God is not another command. It's a story. It's a story. That's what's so great about verses 21 to 23. And I want to read that real quick. When your kids ask you about why you obey God's laws and commands, verse 21, you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. 
And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. This is what the father's supposed to say, not just do it because he's God. He tells the story of the child of it tells the child the story of deliverance and of grace and the gospel. The, the meaning of the law is the gospel. And what's the gospel? It's the story of God coming into history to rescue and renew all of creation, starting with us. He saved us. He purchased us for himself, his glory, his mission, his story. So this text, Deuteronomy 6, is, is the version of the story that the father tells. That's the only one they had at the time. This was the most advanced version of the gospel at the time, the Exodus story. And in the Exodus, what are we told? We're told the story of, of deliverance. The Israelites were in slavery, and God broke into history, and God sent a deliverer. What was his name? Moses. You guys are still with me? God sent 10 plagues, which is kind of like rolling the judgment against all the injustice and sin of humankind forward to that final judgment day. And God brought that into Egypt and, and brought down his judgment against human e evil. And how did the Israelites get out? They were sinful too. They were right there where the angel of death came. How'd they get out? The answer was the blood of the lamb. Yeah. Before the law went on the doorpost, like it says to do here, what was on the doorpost? The blood of the lamb. Passover night, everyone's dying because of God's judgment, but the Israelites took shelter under the blood of the lamb and they slew the lamb and they ate it and they put the blood on their doorpost and the judgment of God passed over and they hid themselves under the blood. That's the answer. As far as they knew at the time, why should I obey the law? It's not, the answer is not another law. It's not to get to heaven. It's not to have a blessed life or because otherwise somehow God will get you. No, 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 no. God's already blessed us. Therefore, we obey. God's already forgiven us. Therefore, we obey. God secured heaven for us forever. Therefore, we obey. It's not fear or coercion or guilt or shame, but it's love and gratitude and grace. Because before the law went on the doorpost, the blood went on the doorpost. That's the reason why we can even put the law on our doorposts. Because we know God is for us. He's chosen us by grace. The meaning of the law is God's intervention in his grace. That's why it's out of gratitude, my son. That's why. And yet that can only go so far. Because what if the son asks, like, well, okay, dad, but I don't get it. Why, how? It's just a lamb. How did the blood take away my sins? Which is me imitating Ivan at this point. That's how we talk. <laughs> how? And, and the dad said, you know, honestly, I've been wondering that for a long time, too. It's just an animal. I don't get it. You know, it's God. That's what he said to do. God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? But then John the Baptist is standing in a river baptizing people. And he sees Jesus walking along the seashore. And what's he say? It hits him all of a sudden. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist says in that moment, I get it. The, the, the little animal lamb didn't take away our sins. The, the lambs were just a symbol. Here's the one 
God himself came to take the judgment and absorb the debt. Because the whole Exodus is pointing to something ultimate, something greater, something else. The Exodus is all about Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Moses, the one who alone fulfills the law. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb who's slain to remove God's wrath from us. Jesus is the ultimate firstborn who died for our sin, not his own. Jesus is the ultimate savior who redeems not millions from one nation, but billions out of every nation. Jesus is the ultimate redeemer, taking us to a greater promised land, the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus is the ultimate lawgiver, not only writing his law on stone, but also on the new hearts that he gives us, hearts that want to obey him. That's, That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. And all the Old Testament points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you look upon him today and see God's love for you in the gospel, that's how you can love him transformatively. Because he loved you transformatively. That's how you can believe in him fully because he believed in you. He knew what he was making you. He knew how he had created you and what he was reshaping you into. Do you know that God believes in you? That's how you can trust him unconditionally. It's, it's, it's not enough to just say to your heart, you have to trust him because he's God. You're just a sheep. He's the great shepherd. And you're, you're never, you're never going to understand what he's doing. That'll work for a while. It will. It'll get compliance for a little while in your life. But ultimately, you need to see the ultimate truth, that the great shepherd became a sheep, became a little lamb that was destroyed. He became vulnerable. The creator of the cosmos limited himself to time and space and allowed himself to be killed by his creation. And three days later, he picked up his life again and rose victorious over sin and disease and addiction and fear and guilt and shame and death and everything that you face on a day-to-day basis. He is bigger than it. It's no problem for him. There's nothing in your life he can't handle. That's why you can love and trust and believe in him. And that's how you can tell the story. And here's the point. You have to tell the gospel story to your heart over and over, or you will not be able to love God transformatively, trust him unconditionally, and believe in him fully. If you don't tell that story over and over, you'll find yourself putting your hope in things besides him. You'll find yourself explaining parts of him away. You'll find yourself trying to have a living relationship with a cardboard cutout. Chopping up the scriptures to fit your desires. Or you'll find yourself struggling over and over when life gets difficult. You'll stumble at the promises. You'll, you'll lose your passion and your joy and your hope. And you'll live a limp along Christian existence instead of the abundant life that Jesus purchased for you with his own blood. Why? Because the gospel has somehow faded from the center. It's been replaced by something else. You've got to find ways to write the gospel on the doorpost of your life. And as a community, we have to find ways to write the the gospel on on the gates of our city, to live a life beyond ourselves, and take the love of God into every nook and cranny of our culture. We have to. That's what we're called to. And if we're not doing that, we're living so far below our calling. No wonder we wonder what life is about half the time. What's the point? You have a life, you have a mission greater than yourself. 
to be salt and light in a dark and tasteless world. I want you to consider that as we take communion today. Will you close your eyes? I just want you to ask yourself, what, what, what might be some of the nooks and crannies of your life that the gospel's not reached yet? Where do I not believe? Where do I not trust? Where do I not love this one God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you need to love him with a oneness, with your whole being, every part of you. What are some ways you can write the gospel on the doorpost of your heart today, even over communion? What are some ways that we can envision of writing the, the, the good news of the gospel all throughout this city? Father, we thank you that you've loved us so completely, so fully. Thank you that while we were so far from you, while our hearts were far from you, your love came and and outran us and overtook us and you scooped us in your arms like we were singing about in that last song. I am surrounded by the arms of a father. We get to say that we are the sons and daughters who sing of freedom. And we're not just singing of freedom because it's a cool word written in a Bible somewhere, but because it's the day-to-day reality we get to experience as we live life with you. And I pray, God, that we would not settle for just a humdrum life where we come and hear sermons on Sundays. And we sign a card and we check a box and we say, yes, I, 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 I will follow Jesus. God, I pray that we would come to know what it means to walk with the God of the universe. What it means to take your love and be transformed by it in every part of our life. To love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. To live for you. And I pray that every single person in this place would come to know what that means at a deeper level in the next few moments. Holy Spirit, minister to us in this place. As we take communion, as we pray, as we sing, move on our hearts. Give us some prophetic imagination for our own lives and for the life of this church and what this, what this city could look like as your kingdom comes more fully here. Help us not to be content, God but to just keep pressing in for more because you weren't content. You left everything and you pressed in for us and you gave your all for us. Thank you so much. Thank you that you lived a perfect life every day in your flesh so that when we take that bread into our hand and put it into our mouth, we remember that your very righteousness has become ours. Thank you that you spilled your blood on that cross like the Passover lamb. And now we get to apply it to our doorpost and not be afraid anymore of the curse, not be afraid anymore because we're yours, we're your sons and daughters. And I pray that we would sing of freedom in these next few moments, God. In your name we pray, amen.